Well, good morning. Happy New Year's Eve. I hope and I trust that you all had a very Merry Christmas. If I've not had the, uh, the privilege of meeting you, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at Substance, and I'm very excited to be with you on this New Year's Eve morning where we will be examining a passage from Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And we're specifically going to be honing in on verses 33 through 37, the passage pertaining to oaths, not oats, not honey bunches of them either, oaths. See, at first glance, it actually might seem a bit random to be diving into such a passage, but as we do, I trust that we will find Jesus' heart concerning oath-taking and oath-making is actually very relevant uh, to our everyday lives, even New Year's Eve. How about that? So for those who are unfamiliar with the Sermon on the Mount, it is Jesus' first major sermon, first of five major sermons, in fact, that Matthew records in his gospel account. And while this sermon is primarily directed toward Jesus' disciples, his close followers, his, his learners, those who would have committed and, uh, to, to Jesus' ministry and teaching, though that's the primary audience, uh, this message is also being addressed to the crowds, these massive crowds that would have been gathering around Jesus as a result of his signs and wonders and miracles that he had been performing throughout the region of Galilee. And amongst the crowds would have even been kind of a third subgroup of people who would be hearing this message of Jesus, the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, and I might add the corrupt religious leaders of the day. The crux of the Sermon on the Mount in correction to the scribes and Pharisees is to portray what life in God's kingdom is truly like. And while life in God's kingdom certainly entails and includes a visible obedience to God's law, to God's rules, it has never been about a stale, robotic, outward conformity to God's rules like the scribes and Pharisees had essentially taught and modeled. See, where, where legalism demands us to follow God's rules in order to receive his love, Jesus invites us to follow God's rules because he already loves us and he wants us to flourish. And so at the heart of today's passage on oaths isn't just an old law that Jesus is reintroducing and reinforcing. At the heart of today's passage is Christ himself desiring to lead us into the abundant life that he created us for by way of restoring integrity to our word so that like him, our word actually means something. Because our God is a God of his word, we should desire, we should desire as citizens and representatives of his kingdom to be a people of our word. And that is the title of this message this morning. 
And again, our desire is not out of an effort to earn God's favor, church. We've got to hear this on this New Year's Eve day because we've already received God's favor in Christ. Hallelujah. Do you see how the gospel flips it from we have to obey what we read today to we get to obey because God already loves us. We're now free to model him and reflect him and represent him as we were created to do. So that is ultimately where this passage, <clears throat> excuse me, and this Sermon on the Mount leads us. So with that in mind, let's read and let's walk through and let's learn about this passage. So if you have your Bibles and or your devices, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37, which is roughly one-third of the way through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And as Pastor Ronnie said earlier, if you don't have a Bible, our Bible's on the back table. So let's read, and, uh, and we'll pray, and we'll continue forward. Verse 33. <clears throat> Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these words from your Bible. Thank you for the word, Jesus, who was and is the true fulfillment of these words. Thank you that your love for us is not conditioned upon our perfect obedience to these words, but rather, because you love us so much, you accredit us with Jesus' perfect obedience. And now, Father, we're free to obey for your glory and our joy. Amen. <clears throat> well, you might have noticed that today's passage on oaths sits right in the middle of several paragraphs or, or passages, all within Jesus' sermon, pertaining to a variety of topics. You can see them in, if your Bible has headings, such as anger, lust, divorce, and then we see oaths, retaliation, and, and, and loving enemies. Well, these six paragraphs, these six passages are known as the six antitheses. And Jesus begins each one of them by saying a variation of this. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. For instance, if you glance back at verse 21 under the subheading of anger, again, this is all within Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we'll read this. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. 
What Jesus is doing in the six antitheses is exposing the surface level obedience that the surface level, level obedience to these various laws that was being taught and modeled by the scribes and Pharisees. And he's basically saying to the disciples and the crowds and of course to the eavesdropping scribes and Pharisees, I know you've heard from your leaders uh, that, that all you have to do to fulfill the sixth commandment is simply not murder someone. I know you've heard it said that way, but I'm telling you that the law was intended for something much deeper that the law was intended to show you that if there's anger in your heart, you've already murdered. Because anger and murder are of the same sinful substance, as is lust and adultery, the same sinful substance. It's important that we understand this as we dive into the section on oaths, because Jesus is going after something much deeper than oaths themselves. Because for Jesus, It is always, always, always about the heart. Again, he says, again, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. In the little time we have left this morning, we're going to investigate the meaning and the implications of this passage. And we're going to consider three basic questions to help us understand what's going on. Number one, for those of us who may be unfamiliar with the language, what is an oath? It's pretty important to understand. Number two, why is Jesus forbidding us to take oaths? And number three, how then does this or should this affect the way we live? How is it relevant today? And guys, I hate to be a drama queen. Is there anyone that could get me a bottle of water by chance? Thank you so much. So sorry to interrupt here. I am struggling. Okay, number one, what is an oath? An oath is a sworn declaration to perform a certain act. It's a solemn promise, right, to to tell the truth if you're on the witness stand or to protect the Constitution if you're the president or if you're in the CIA to maintain secrecy, right? An oath almost always involves, thank you, the leveraging of something valuable in order to demonstrate our serious intention to perform a task. And what I mean by that is this. We've all heard something like this before. I swear on my family's land, leveraging something valuable. I promise on my mother's grave, right? I, I, I swear on a stack of Bibles. And sometimes some of us will even invoke God's name into what we swear in our oath-taking. But the whole idea behind taking an oath or making a sworn vow or a solemn pinky promise, cross my heart and hope to die, the whole idea of oath-taking is to convince the person we are promising that we mean business, that we are going to do what it is we say we're going to do. And if we do not, the valuable item that we have leveraged essentially loses its meaning or it's stripped of its value. Now the scribes and Pharisees, they were well aware of the gravity of swearing on God's name. 
Because if a Jew did not fulfill a promise that they made in the Lord's name, they were accountable to the Lord, not to the person who they were promising. This was a serious deal. And because it was so serious, the scribes and Pharisees had developed a really clever list of important sounding things by which they could swear, such as heaven or earth or Jerusalem or even their own head. All of the things that Jesus mentions in verses 34 and 30 through 36. See, let's use these as an example. See how serious these oaths sworn on lesser sounding, well, important sounding but lesser things. See how serious these sound. With heaven is my witness, I swear that I will do this or that. Right? I vow by the earth itself that I did not say this or that. By Jerusalem and all her glory, I will never again do this or that. Or how about this one? On my own head, I promise to keep this or that. Do you, do you hear how serious these oaths sound? And the law simply states, as Jesus quotes in verse 33, that you must perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Here's a catch. This, this would have only been the case if the scribes and Pharisees were swearing on the Lord's name. There's a loophole here that I want you to see. So the scribes and Pharisees, they reasoned to themselves and they taught the people of Israel that if they simply avoided God's name in an oath, instead, if they swore on other things, important sounding things, they could make a pretty convincing promise to someone without any intention of owning up to it or fulfilling it. Yes, 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 they would say. I swear by Jerusalem and all her inhabitants that I'll be at that meeting next Saturday. For the scribes and Pharisees, oaths had become ammo for manipulation. They could lie through their teeth to appease whomever it was they were promising and still by the letter of the law be innocent. They weren't swearing unto the Lord. It is this surface level superficial obedience that we, that we find historically and in context that Jesus is condemning in the six antitheses. Verse 34, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, and... Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. What Jesus is saying when he's preaching this sermon is, what's the use of avoiding God's name in your oaths, scribes and Pharisees? What's the use of swearing by heaven or earth or Jerusalem when heaven and earth and Jerusalem all belong to God? What's the use of of swearing even by your own head, O scribes and Pharisees, when your head belongs to God. You don't even have the power to change the color of one hair. And so Jesus' point to the crowd and to us, we have zero ground. We have zero actual authority to make any promises at all. It's the spirit of James chapter four when he writes, come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow, we will do this or that. 
Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And he writes, don't boast in your arrogance, for all such boasting is evil. It's the way that today's passage ends. It's a very similar tenor. So it is in this spirit that Jesus is exhorting his disciples and the crowds and the Pharisees and us do not take an oath at all. But I think it still begs the question if it's not self-evident. Number two, why exactly is Jesus forbidding us to take oaths? And, and ultimately, we're going to get to why it's relevant. I think that there are three reasons why Jesus is forbidding us, the third one being the most prominent and important for today. Number one, why is Jesus forbidding us to take oaths? Because nothing we leverage in our oaths, such as the stack of Bibles, actually belongs to us. None of it. Number two, because nothing we promise to perform, such as I promise you I'll be at that meeting on Saturday, nothing that we promise to perform is actually in our own authority to do so. We should say if the Lord wills, we will be there. But there's a third reason, and I think that this is the main thrust. It's the heart-level reason why Jesus is forbidding us to take oaths. Because as his followers, as his image bearers, as his representatives on this earth, yours and my character should be of such integrity that we don't need to take an oath in order to be believed. Verse 37, let what you say be simply yes or no. For anything more than this comes from evil. The reason why so many of us have to take pinky promises and, and miniature oaths in order to convince the people around us that, you know, we mean business, the reason we have to is because our plain and simple word has been emptied of its meaning. We have overpromised and underdelivered so many times that our word is no longer trustworthy. It is no longer believable. It's, it's, it's no longer enough. And many of us have been so careless with our commitments to others and maybe even so flippant in our promises to our children that if our coworkers or our spouses or our kids were to describe us, they would not use words such as truthful, faithful, reliable, dependable, punctual, all the things that should describe a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Listen, if those words don't describe you this morning, but you're also not claiming to be a Christian, you're temporarily off the hook. First of all, welcome. We're glad that you're here. You're temporarily off the hook. But for those of us who claim to be disciples of Christ and the words truthful, and faithful and dependable do not describe us, we must ask ourselves, why on earth not? Why on earth not? 
I don't think that the main issue of today's text is oath-taking. God himself promised, he he took an oath that he would redeem, and, and we'll get to that in a moment. But the main issue of today's text is this. It's about our careless words being issued from careless hearts. Words that lack intention emerging from hearts that lack intention. I see, it's always a heart issue for Jesus. Let what you say be simply yes or no. For anything more than this comes from evil. So how then, sweet mercy, how then should this affect the way we live? And is there any good news here? Yes, there is. But some introspective questions. Brothers and sisters, do we often change our mind after we've committed to something? Do we lose interest or simply forget after we've said we would do this or that? Do we agree to things that we don't really intend to follow through on? And and I guess a particular question that would be helpful in thinking through this, how about this? Do we tell people that we will be praying for them when in fact we're just simply saying it to appease them in the moment and we have actually no intention of setting an alarm or an alert or, or, or actually praying and actually laboring for the person we've just told we would? Do we commit to a community group, a CG, but, but, but fizzle out after a month or a year? Could it be said that, that maybe many of us don't adequately count the cost of our commitments before we jump into them and therefore we find ourselves either unable or unwilling to perform? Today's passage is calling on God's people to be intentional with their words and their commitments, which means that many of us might need to be slower to speak and slower to commit to things. We might actually need to think and and, and process through our ability to perform what it is that we say that we will. We might need to process and pray longer about what we can handle asking ourselves and the Lord, what are our limits? Very few people take the time to process through their limitations, though we all have them. We might need to be just flat out fewer in our commitments. This may result in saying no more frequently than saying yes and and saying no to a lot of good things and a lot of good people in order to give ourselves more fully to the few things that we can handle with excellence. We might need to be more punctual, more dependable with less tasks. Performing a lot of tasks halfway does no one really any good. And so this is where we reject the idea of overworking and stacking our plates too high And in light of New Year's and the resolutions that many of us make, and this is how this passage pertains, we might need to revisit, we might need to reemphasize our commitment to the Lord out of the Lord's commitment to us as as a first and major 
priority before adding on a bunch of new resolutions for the year. Such as God, how is it that I can walk out my devotion to you more so in 2018? Lord, help me. Help me to, to get before you in the morning and throughout the day in prayer and, and immersed in community of believers who love you. These would be wonderful things to recommit to as we enter into the new year. And lastly, we might need to consider how our words and our commitments are opportunities for worship. For, for worship. See, when we fulfill our commitments, when we live up to our word, we actually honor God by imitating him and by reflecting him. Every time we show up when we said we would, every time we follow through, every time we perform what we said we would perform, every time that our word proves faithful and reliable, we in fact image, we reflect the one whose word is always faithful and reliable. When our words don't return void, we point others toward him whose word never returns void. And thank God, thank God that his word never returns void. Thank God that he didn't treat lightly his words and promises throughout the Old Testament that are littered throughout the narrative of the Old Testament that he said he would send a rescuer. He would send a redeemer. He would send a Messiah to the earth to save people from their sin. Thank God that when the time had fully come, as, as Galatians 4 reports, that God did send his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And because we are now his sons and daughters, for those who are in Christ, God has sent his promised Holy Spirit into our hearts prompting us to call out to him and thus we are no longer slaves to sin but we're God's own children. We're heirs according to his promise. Thank God that he did all that he said he would do through the person and work of Jesus Christ who when the time came to exact these promises we see Jesus face down in the garden of Gethsemane in agony over the tremendous cost to follow through on what was promised. But nevertheless, he fully and willingly did it. He completed the work. He finished our redemption. For those of us who read through passages such as the, the oaths dissertation of the Sermon on the Mount or for those of us who read through the Sermon on the Mount or, or just the Bible in general and we are racked with the feeling of the weight of our disqualification, the fact that we just don't measure up to the citizenship described in the Sermon on the Mount, that's a good thing. That's a good thing when we see that we're disqualified from the kingdom because the Sermon on the Mount is intended to crush us. It's intended to do so. It's intended to show us that our anger and lust and flippant promises disqualify us 
from citizenship in God's kingdom and fellowship with him. And to those of us who sense our disqualification maybe even this morning, that's called poorness of spirit, poverty of spirit. And Jesus is delighted to offer himself to those of us who know we don't measure up to this. The question, the invitation, will you reach out to him today? For all of us who acknowledge that, man, I am a man of empty promises to my kids and everyone who's near to me, but my Jesus was a man who fulfilled all of his promises. And when he took the cross in my place and rose again in my place and went to the Father in my place, the Father, now looking at me, he sees his son Jesus who upheld every promise. And the same is true for you, brothers and sisters in Christ. And so our future, today, our obedience of this passage on oaths is founded on the obedience of Christ. We can obey this because Christ did, and then he sent his Holy Spirit to empower our steps. And so by God's grace, I pray that we would see, because our God is a God of his word, that you and I should desire as citizens and representatives of his kingdom, to be a people of our word, whether in a courtroom where business is getting real or a community group or even making a casual New Year's resolution. Because our God is a God of his word, we get to be a people of our word. Would you pray with me? God, I, th- I thank you. I thank you for the challenge of Matthew chapter five, verses 33 through 37. I thank you for the challenge of the Sermon on the Mount. I thank you for the challenge of reading scripture and what you desire of your kingdom citizens and then seeing in ourselves that there's no way we match up. We've all fallen short of this glory of God because we're all sinners. But I thank you even more so and boast even more so in the name of Jesus who came as a second Adam He came as a man. We've just celebrated the incarnation in this season of Advent we've just passed. And he lived up to this perfectly. He died a death that we deserve. He rose again. And now for those who call upon the name of Jesus, Father God, you see his track record pinned to our chests. And we thank you so much for that gospel truth. Let us be a people of of our word as you are a God of yours. In Jesus' name, amen.